as we turn with our study leader Dave Wurtzen to Daniel chapter 5. We enter a Babylonian party where the sacred goblets from the destroyed temple in Jerusalem are being used to drown the fear of the Babylonians and to praise their impotent gods on the very night when the Persian army was poised to end their revelry forever. On Wednesday night, um, Sam Rogers was sharing with us. I asked the group if some of them would share a story where they'd gotten instruction in the past and they didn't learn from their experience. How many of you have ever had someone say, now you need to do this, and it's absolutely important that you do this, and you didn't listen? Anybody ever done that? Well, Sam told this story. I'd heard him tell it before. When he was a little boy, he grew up in, in Tennessee. There's beautiful rivers in Tennessee. And one day, there, there's this marvelous, sweet river swimming hole. And in the dead of summer, as the temperatures skyrocket in Tennessee, Sam and his buddies could go down to this river. There'd be this marvelous swimming hole. It was hours and hours of free fun. But his dad, from the safety of the bank, took him a little bit away from their swimming hole and leaned over the edge, holding on to his young son, and said, Now, Sam, you see this clear spot? See that clear spot right there in the river? Whatever you do, don't swim in that spot. It looked like it was only six inches deep. I mean, a foot at the most. It had a nice, soft, sandy bottom. And Sam's dad said, Sam... Whatever you do, don't swim in that spot. Because if you do, I know it looks inviting, and I know that it looks harmless, but the current is super swift right there in that spot. And you'll be swept down a river, and you could drown. Sam heard his father. Any of you ever heard your father? And he was swimming, you know, many, many weeks, enjoying it through the summer. And he remembers that often he'd be swimming in the hole and he'd, he'd look over and he'd see, the, uh, he'd see you know, the, that beautiful spot and he began to think, well, it doesn't look too deep. And uh, the water, I mean, I can't see any current at all. And I just, I just wonder what it would be like to go swimming there. And one day, after thinking that repeatedly, one day, little Sammy went over to that spot, out of his swimming hole, and got into that area where the water looked so safe. And just like that, he was swept down the river. He got caught, and he got caught in the current. He couldn't escape it. It threw him right into all this brush. It was along the shoreline. His feet went under the brush, and he felt he was bracing the current with his neck, but he could feel that the river current was just winning and was going to pull him right underneath that, that, right underneath that underbrush. In fact, all he could do, he had his hands up in the air, he's bracing himself, trying to keep from being swept under, the, under that brush. And just as he went on, just before he went under, he said all he could do was just barely get out. Help! Help! Somehow his father skirted around that very dangerous place by a miracle of grace, his dad happened to be there when they were swimming. And he got right into that brush. He reached over and he grabbed Sam's hands that were lifted up and he pulled him to safety. And Sam learned a lesson. You need 
to listen to your daddy. This morning, we want to talk about a man who had the example of probably his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. It's hard to tell the exact relationship that Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, the last king that was in the, on the throne in Babylon, it's hard to tell exactly what Belshazzar's relationship was with Nebuchadnezzar. The word father can be used a little bit more loosely. I know that his physical father was Nabonidus, and Nabonidus chose to, uh, for about eight or nine years, to go away from Babylon. He gave the throne to Belshazzar, which was a great insight that we'll find out as we study this chapter. But Belshazzar had the example of what we learned in our last session together. He had the living color example of Nebuchadnezzar being swept away in the river. Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar that you've lifted yourself up in pride. You're living for the gods of gold and silver. You're living for your own military might. You're living thinking that you're the source of all Babylon's prosperity. And for seven years... Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. Lane did an incredible job describing the insanity of Nebuchadnezzar as he became a beast and his fingernails grew long and what it was like to chew grass and having green stuff come out of your mouth. And suddenly his grandfather lifted up his eyes to heaven and his sanity returned to him. Belshazzar witnessed all of that in his life. And as we turn to Daniel chapter 5, we find out that he didn't listen at all to the example of Nebuchadnezzar. It's one thing to be warned. It's another thing that after you've seen someone swept away like Sam was and then delivered, it's one thing to just reenact the same thing and go swimming in that dangerous place again. And yet that's what Daniel 5 is all about. We begin the chapter... Just to give you a little bit of history, what was happening, Belshazzar's dad, Nabonidus, had been beaten by Cyrus. The Medes and the Persian armies had defeated him out a little bit away from Babylon. Belshazzar had been made the king in his father's place, and for many years he'd been ruling. You might wonder, well, what in the world? The army was just defeated. What in the world are they having a great big banquet for? And the reason they had this great big banquet is that if you, you need to understand, they are sitting in the midst of an impregnable city. The walls are 80 feet. Historians estimate that they, they had 20 years of supply. And so they're safe and secure. As we begin the chapter, Belshazzar feels like, I'm safe. There's no way that I'm going to fall. Also, we began Daniel in chapter 1, with God's people going into captivity. We started out with probably Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, destroying the temple in Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah had predicted that the children of Israel would be held in captivity for how many years? Seventy years. Well, Belshazzar is calculated, only he was probably one year off, so he didn't do his math very well. But Belshazzar was thinking, hey, the 70 years is up, and guess who ain't gone home yet? All that is behind what's going on. Belshazzar is impregnable. He is going to defy the living God. And as we begin the chapter, we have a banquet for a thousand of his lords. Turn to Daniel chapter 5, let's read it. Then King Belshazzar, 
He gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that the Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, reminding us of chapter 1, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, ordinarily the women wouldn't be brought in in an, in an Eastern Persian or Babylonian feast. But they're getting a little bit drunk. Remember in the book of Esther, we have a similar story when all the lords of Persia get drunk and the Hasawares ask for Queen Vashti to come. In fact, if you study the Old Testament, you'll find out that there's a lot of bad things that happen at banquets and also the New Testament. Remember, it was Herod having a banquet when Salome danced for him, and he ended up cutting John the Baptist's head off. So one of the themes you want to look for in the Scripture is a lot of times when you have banquets and you honor the gods of gold and silver and the gods of immorality and the gods of idolatry, often really bad things happen. What's happening here? Belshazzar is underneath, I think he's really afraid. When you got the whole Persian army that's on the outskirts of your city and your father's been defeated and Cyrus is tightening the noose, you can't help but be afraid. All of us as Americans, how many of you have felt a little bit of fear over the last week or so? Anybody find yourself having a little bit of fear? I have. It's been a strange time. When congressmen are telling me, hey, we'd never face this, and the former head of GE is saying, hey, you know, this is really strange time, and he reverses the kind of advice that he's given for years. Hey, the government really needs to get, get involved, and I know that you would all divide. I think the government should do it. I think they should not. It's a time of uncertainty. Well, Belshazzar's faced one of those times, and that's why he calls this banquet. When you're afraid, you want to gather together with your friends. So he gathers a thousand of his lord. We know that it was the practice of ancient Near Eastern kings to have these great banquets. And we probably even found this hallway. It looks like in the archaeological excavations of ancient Babylon, they found a large hall. It's rectangularly built. And the king, there's a niche that's right opposite the door. It's kind of an auditorium like this. And you would come in, only there wouldn't be doors on that side, but kind of right opposite where I'm standing now. There was a door that you came in, and then there's a niche that's right here in this wall. If you think of this being a wall, and the king was sitting and eating in that niche. The ordinary custom would be for him to have curtains where you wouldn't be able to see him. And then after the meal... Their custom was, after they ate their meal, they would drink together, and he would invite about 12 of his very intimate, close associates to come, and they would drink with the king. And so those are kind of the customs that are going on here. Look what it says happened. It says that King Belshazzar invited a thousand of his lords, the women are come. He gets the goblets that his Nebuchadnezzar, the golden goblets from the temple in Jerusalem. So they brought the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank from the wine, they praised the gods of gold and of silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I ask the question, what happens when we worship materialism, power, and alcohol? What happens when we worship materialism, power, and alcohol? All of you have friends 
that think that you're nutty for believing in Jesus. Well, Belshazzar would have been one of those friends. If I bring Belshazzar up into the modern world, he would be one of your friends that goes to great parties. Anybody have any friends that go to parties? And they start telling immoral jokes. That's part of it, especially after they get drunk a little bit. They have a good meal, and then they drink one glass of wine, two glasses of wine, three glasses of wine. Or some of you guys have friends. How many of you have friends that they drink one beer, two beers, three beers, four beers? Anybody ever been in those kind of situations? There's nothing new under the sun. If you're not connected with God, then when you're afraid, you look for something else. One of the things that I really ask myself today is, what do I trust in today? What do I believe in today? And every one of us in this room, it's easy to look at Belshazzar and say, well, man, I'm not like that. If my 401ks drop 30% just like that, and I can't sleep, then what am I trusting in? And we need to help each other with that, but it's very important to understand, I, what I'm saying is I felt secure when I had that, and now I don't feel secure anymore. Whatever you're trusting in, that's your God. Like when we look at the Babylonians and they're worshiping these little idols and, you know, it's gold and silver, it's wood that's coated with a metal, we laugh at that. In other words, because that's not very, like, if, if I was speaking to a Malaysian audience, for example, they would say, oh, yeah, we understand that. Almost all of our friends, that's what they do. They, they go to the temple and look at gold, you know, wooden idols that are covered with gold or even pure gold idols. If you've been in that kind of a culture, like when my son Joel and uh, his wife Courtney were in Malaysia, they went to temples and saw thousands of people that were bowing down to stuff just like the Babylonians bowed down to it. Our kind of idolatry and my kind of idolatry is a lot more subtle. And there's in things that I begin to trust in. One of them can be alcohol. In fact, among believers, when you get home at night and you've had a really rough day, and I've taught you that the Bible says, it doesn't say don't be given to any wine, but don't be given to much wine. So some of you say, well, man, that means that I can go ahead and have that glass of wine. How many glasses do you have? And why do you have them? Because what starts to happen is there's things in our life that we begin to depend upon. Or when things are really troubling, and I got a great big screen TV, and I turn on the TV and then I let five hours go by. Why do I do that? Because it helps me to feel secure. It helps me to forget. Those are your gods. Lane put a really, a really discouraging article in my box a few days ago. Ray Boltz was a marvelous evangelical singer. And he sang the song, Watch the Lamb. Eddie Irving has sung that for us many times. Watch the Lamb. He did one song after another. You've all heard at funerals. How many of you have heard, thank you for giving to the Lord? How many of you have ever heard that at a funeral? Ray just came out that he is gay. 
And he's not saying, what he said was that I fought this for years. But the article that I read said, I fought this for years, but I'm so thankful to God that I don't need to fight it anymore. That I found a group of believers that rejoice in my identity. And now I am being my true self. Now you can get angry at Ray. And I have several of those that I've known for years. Mel White that wrote articles for Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell and everything is one of the major leaders in the homosexual evangelical movement supposedly. I want you to listen really carefully to what they say. They say, now I can really live. I can be my true self. You know what they're saying? They're saying, my God, my God is my homosexuality. Now, because most of you don't worry, that's not really your struggle. It's real easy to see that that's become their false God. Like in this article, Ray has left his wife. His wife blesses him. You talk about a really strange combination. You've been married for years. Like, I just had my grandkids up. Laura, my daughter-in-law, is able to rejoice with talking about years of experience that we've had together since she and Josh were just young kids. Things wouldn't change if suddenly I said, well, I'm out of here with Mary, and I have a different identity. Everyone's supposed to say, well, isn't that wonderful? That's the craziness of this banquet. But what I want you to understand, it's easy to see it when somebody else is worshiping a false guy because one of the strongest pulls into false worship is your sexuality, whether it's in immoral, heterosexual relationships. One of the most powerful pulls into idolatry is drunkenness. Like some of you are wrestling with alcoholism. And some of you might be doing it secretly. I want you to make this connection. That is idolatry. That's idolatry. What you're saying is, I've got to do this because if I don't do this, I'm going to be dead. And almost all those people talk to me about, I'm suicidal, I want to take my life. And the secondary answer to that is, just give in to it. What I want you to know is the biblical answer is, that you need to realize at the very bottom of your life, every single one of you realistically is alive today because of the living God. And you are going, this chapter's teaching is you're going to live as long as the true God of the universe gives you breath. And he already has the days of your life numbered. That doesn't mean that you need to feel scared. It should give you great security. Many of you are choosing to live your life like that. And I want to really bless you in that because your unbelieving friends this week might tease you and think you're the odd man out. But what I want you to know is you're the one that's really living in the truth. And this chapter gives us an historical example. Belshazzar at the festival thought he was alive. All of his friends are drunk with them with them. They are having immoral relationships with all these concubines. They think they're secure. And you're, as you're listening to me teach this morning, and those of you who have been studying it, you look at this banquet and say, you guys are nuts. 
You are not safe. You are not secure. You're on the edge of a precipice. You have gone swimming in water that's really dangerous. And one thing I want you to understand is that what happens as you begin to worship false gods and as you begin to worship the gods of drunkenness and drugs and all that goes with that, immorality, drugs, and worshiping false passions, you'll end up, you'll end up blaspheming and cursing the true God. David Letterman, I've never heard him tell a joke about Muhammad, but I've heard him tell jokes about Jesus. Very seldom do I hear other spiritual leaders being mocked. Hardly ever. But my Savior all of a sudden comes up. In fact, in almost every time that I'm with a drunk and they begin to lose it, they, tell, they try to tell me dirty jokes, which is a weird thing to do for a pastor. And I, I can know they're really drunk because if they're not drunk, they usually say, oh, I'm sorry. But the other thing they do is they profane the name of my Lord. What it would be like, what Belshazzar does, can you imagine that you're with a group of friends that get drunk? And in our church, when I was raised as a kid, we didn't use those plastic things that we use for communion. You know how we all use that? I was raised in a church where in Plymouth Brethren where we all gathered together every Sunday morning and we had a silver cup. Anybody have that from that kind of tradition? And we passed a silver cup all around the room. Now, can you imagine being with a group of friends and they take that silver cup that's usually used for communion and they fill it with alcohol until they're drunk as a skunk and then they lift that silver cup up that, you, that you've used for communion and they blaspheme God. I'm trying to get you to feel what it was like that night. In the banquet hall, those golden goblets were the last physical, visible things that were left from the temple. And even in the secular world of Babylon, it was really sacrilegious to take the goblets that were used to worship any other god and use them like Belshazzar did. And the Lord God of heaven steps in and the writing's on the wall. If you kids want a ghost story, here's a ghost story. Everyone's drunk. They're all telling dirty jokes. They're profaning these holy cups. And then all of a sudden, here's Belshazzar sitting there in his niche, probably 12 of his close friends gathered around him. Suddenly, probably right up here, Daniel tells us that there's a gold, there's a kind of a candelabra so that it lights up the white plastered wall behind him. And suddenly, just a hand and fingers appears on the wall. Now, some of you have been drunk in your unconverted days. You get sober really, really quick. When in this ghost story that's happening before your very eyes, just a man's hands, just one hand, like it's been severed at the wrist. The word that's used is like just severed at the wrist and just my hand. And you're watching like that, as you can imagine, severed at the wrist, just my fingers writing. Meanie, meanie, tackle a parson. 
Belshazzar was no longer drunk. In fact, it describes him. It describes him. His knees start to shake like that. He can't stand up. And, you know, he's standing up to look at it. Had to sit down. I mean, he is scared to death. And all of his wise men come in like they have all the way through this book. He brings in his diviners. And they look at it. What's on the wall in, what's on the wall are just common weights. A meanie, a tackle, and an aparson is just the name of weights. And like the first word just had to do with counting, and it's a minor weight. The shekel's a little bit bigger. A tekel was a little bit bigger, like a shekel in Hebrew. And then a parson just means it's been divided in half. So it's almost like, like a salesperson that's just calling out the price of something. So when you already know the answer to the riddle, it's kind of like some of the old calculus problems I used to work on. After you figure out the answer, or in my case, you had your friend like Sam Rogers get, you know, show you how to do it. You go, oh, man, how many of you ever had that happen? Well, that's kind of the way it is. As these wise men come in, you and I already know the answer to the story. A lot of us have studied this from the time we were kids. And we look at these, these guys are stupid. Of course it means that. But a lot of that ha-ha moment it's because you already know what the answer was. But if you go back and just look at the wall and just have these three statements about weights and dividing it in half, what's the answer? The thing that strikes me is that all the way through this book, the human wisdom people and the people that are supposed to know everything, they never quite get it right. And the king is furious with them that they don't get it right. But if you look at verse 10, I want you to look what it says. And we'll pick it up with verse 8 because it underscores what I've just been sharing. Then all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing to tell the king what it meant. So the king Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, this would be the queen mother, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. Oh, king, live forever. He isn't. She said, don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him the chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret the dreams, explain riddles, and to solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. It blows my mind. Is there a true God who can put the writing in the wall? And I believe the story says, yes, there is. The true God that's actually there, not the God of gold and silver, wrote a message to the king. Now, you don't need writing on the wall. Because you have 66 books right here. So Belshazzar, at this particular time, he had access to the revelation of the living God through Daniel that was very close to God. He ignored it. It's obvious that Daniel's been forgotten. And one of the things that's very convicting to me is, during this week, have you read the writing on the wall? Because it's the writing in this book. It's really important. And you, you have a lot more revelation than Belshazzar did. 
And one of the things I want to challenge you about is about ignoring the way that the living God's trying to talk to you. It's ignoring how he's trying to get through to you. I want you to think about where's the Belshazzar in me today? What are some of the places in my life where I'm not listening to the voice of God? Don't make it somebody else. Like some of you really might be wrestling. It's been a lifelong wrestling with false sexual attractions. Heterosexual, homosexual. I was at a beautiful wedding last night. I mean, I thought, you know, they, that we, we might not make it through this ceremony. They were so in love with one another. But you know what? Thomas, the bridegroom, is going to still wrestle with immorality. In fact, there could really come a time, like last night, it seemed like a million miles away. But if I were to ask every married couple in this room, how many of you as husbands have ever been attracted to someone that that didn't belong to you? And how many of you wives have ever been attracted to someone that didn't belong to you? Now, what I want you to understand is that's the old man, new man split in your personality. If you have gay tendencies, then you have the split attracted in that area. And I want you to know, we don't want you to leave. You're not any different than someone that has a split. They know they should be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, but they drink six glasses of wine every night. And they pretend, and it's getting worse. What the Lord wants to do this morning is the writing's on the wall. He's writing to you. He's trying to talk to you this morning. And he wants you to be afraid because you ought to be afraid. Because if you walk into that false side, that idolatrous side, you're going to be caught in that current. You're going to be swept away. And what the marvelous thing that God does is that he brings people into, into our lives. And the queen mother was a woman in Belteshazzar's life, in Belshazzar's life, that knew Daniel. And one of the things that's convicted me in the chapter is when my unbelieving friends get in trouble, who do they remember? I want to ask all of you. You all have unbelieving friends. When they get in trouble, what do they remember about you? What did the queen mother remember about Daniel? He had a keen mind. So one of the things we as born-again believers should be known for is that we think things through, that we have discipline. Daniel has been a good diplomat. So if we're in business, it means that we're going to follow the example of Daniel, that before our business colleagues, we have shown them that we're competent, that we work hard to keep developing our understanding. Daniel had a keen mind. It said that he had knowledge and understanding. So he not only had a sharp intellect, but he had that thing called wisdom, which is the ability to apply it. And that's different. It's one thing to have a PhD. Some PhDs are the stupidest people in the world because they don't know how to do anything. It never gets into their hands. It never gets into their feet. And in the Word of God, what we know in our head gets connected with our hands and our feet. It gets connected to action. And Daniel was a man that his unbelieving friends... When they got in trouble, they remembered, there's a man that thinks, 
but there's a man also that knows how to apply. And the queen mother remembers this. Even after Daniel had been forgotten for about 23 years, Daniel was on the sidelines, but now he's remembered. I want to encourage some of you. Some of you are trying to work with a Belshazzar. And some of you, it might be a Belshazzar in your family, and you get discouraged, and you feel like there's no hope. Hang in there. Years can go by. But as you consistently follow the example of Daniel, one of the things you want to do is you want to take these first six chapters that we've been studying, and it gives us this great insight into the character of a man from 14 to in his 80s. And you can look at the qualities, and the final quality that he has is the spirit of the divinity It's a word that shows us that she's talking from a Babylonian perspective, but you and I can fill in the gaps. It's not just the spirit of divinity. It's the spirit of God. From a New Testament standpoint, one of the great gifts that you have as you go into the world today when you leave here is that the spirit of the living God is in your life. Do unbelievers that you associate with that you spend time with, that you build relationship with, do they conclude after watching you and living with you, they have a keen insight, they know how to apply their knowledge, but the bottom line is that there's, a, there's an intangible closeness and evidence of the living God in their life. That's what I want us to pray for. That's what really sets us free. Daniel comes in and Belteshazzar says, Daniel, I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom. Going to put a purple robe on you, the robe of royalty. Going to put a necklace around your neck. And just like Abraham before Melchizedek, Daniel says, I don't want any of it. There's a great lesson in that. And right now with all the turmoil that we're all going through financially, it's a great time to learn something. Some of you feel like, man, if I could only get that purple robe, if I could only have power, I want to climb up in my job. If only I could get that gold necklace. If only I could get success from a business standpoint. That can become an idol. And you're not going to ever be free. You're not going to ever be like Daniel until you can follow Daniel in Daniel's freedom. And I covet this for every one of you. Your heavenly daddy wants to set every one of you free that your boss can offer you the world But if it compromises your faith, you go, I don't care. That's not what I live for. You're not the one that sustains my need. So this morning as we're listening, it's easy to be really planted. Oh, yeah, I really believe God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. I'm going to find security in him. I'm going to love him. Where the crunch comes It's when you're put in a situation in your business life, in your educational life, where you got to make a choice and really rest in the living God that's there. And I want you to think really hard about this situation. What was true about Belshazzar's gift to Daniel? A lot of you that say this passage, it's ludicrous. The king is saying, I'm going to make you the third ruler in the kingdom because it was very accurate. Nabonidus, his father, was number one. Belshazzar was number two, so he's going to be a, like part of a triumvirate, a threeness. But before the night is over, it's not going to mean anything. So you say, well, Dave, of course, Daniel. Why does Daniel want that? He knows what the interpretation of the world is. So do you. The great freedom I want all of you to know 
is that you are sitting before me. You're going to breathe as long as Daniel's God wants you to breathe. You're going to eat as long as he wants you to eat. You're going to have health as long as he wants you to have health. And when he says that your days are ended, you're going to go home to glory if you know Jesus. So you're safe. And a lot of you join me in that faith. If you don't, I pray that you will. The message that Daniel's proclaiming to us is that that's reality. And that's a great, secure way to live. It's really true. Daniel says, I don't need your rewards, and this is what the writing means. Meaning, meaning. Your days have been numbered. Meaning is like counting. It's like an auctioneer is yelling out, this is the number, this is the number. Psalm 90 says, number your days. Number your days that you might attain a heart of wisdom. And Daniel looked at the writing and says, your days have been numbered. So God knows, the God that I'm proclaiming this morning, knows every one of the numbers of your physical life. If you're in Jesus, the number will never end because you have eternal life. The second thing, tekel, is a weight. And Daniel says, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. Daniel's God, the God of Scripture, is watching our motives. He's the one that's evaluating all of our lives. And he's the one that makes the judgments. And the final statement is the pronouncement of judgment. Your days are numbered. For Belshazzar, the night, the days were up that night. You've been weighed your motives. You just blasphemed the Lord God of heaven and said you worship false gods. Tonight is the night you will find out who the living God is. Because we're going to move from the golden head of Babylon till the silver of Medo-Persia. And tonight, the night, Belshazzar, you got your year one year off. The 70 years is up. Now, Belshazzar put the robes on Daniel, put the necklace on around his neck. Before Daniel was able to enjoy one strut of Babylonian power, Herodotus and Xenophon, the Greek historians, tell us that behind those 80-foot walls, as Belshazzar had that great big feast, the Persian engineers had diverted the Euphrates River that flowed right underneath those 80-foot walls. And that night, they diverted the river into a different channel that took the Euphrates away from the city of Babylon. And it made a beautiful roadway that went right underneath those impregnable walls. And we read in other sources, right, the Akkadian sources, we read that Cyrus really was one of his generals, Guberu, or Ugburus, came in underneath those walls, took the city without a fight. They did kill Belshazzar, and he was gone. Sam ended the story that I shared, that he shared with us on Wednesday night. He said, Dave, you know what? And he said to the group on Wednesday night, he said, you know what's really sad? I just got word from my hometown that another boy went swimming in that river. And he got caught in that spot, 
And there was no daddy that rescued him. In other words, irrespective, I'm sure since Sam's little boyhood, there's been countless warnings, don't swim in that spot, don't swim in that spot. The point of Daniel chapter 5 is God said, Nebuchadnezzar, don't swim in that spot. Don't worship the gods of gold and silver. Don't worship your ego. Don't believe that you're the master of your fate. Bow before the living God. Nebuchadnezzar went insane for seven years, and then he lifted up his eyes and saw the Lord God of heaven. Belshazzar, his grandson, should have saw the example of his grandfather. And the sad point of this message is he was warned, he had a powerful example, but he swam in the forbidden spot on the river again. And this time he was swept away. Unlike the chapter taught last week, Nebuchadnezzar's chapter begins with worship of the true God and ends with worship of the true God. Chapter 5 begins with a drunken, immoral orgy. And it ends with Belshazzar's death. I pray that if you don't know Jesus in an ultimate sense, I want you to know that you can put your hands up as you're drowning in the sea of life. And Jesus, the Son of God, as you yell, help, because Jesus died on the cross for you and because Jesus rose again, the Father in heaven wants to grab your hands and pull you out. Don't be a Belshazzar. Listen to the example. There's no need to be swept away. 